And speaking of that, let me ask you a long awaited question. When was the last time that the World Wrestling Federation had a black man to wear that belt? Can you answer that for me? Answer that question. No, never. No, you can't answer that. You know why? Because you, there never has been one. Oh, you, you've had token blacks in position of intercontinental champion like our man Johnson for a short period of time. Oh, you've had U.S. champions like Bobo Brazil with the U.S. belt for a short period of time. No, I'll tell you what. And speaking of that, when was the recent chance that our man Johnson had a shot to become the World Wrestling Federation champion? Tell me that. Can you answer that? No, you can't, because you people don't feel a black man is worthy of wearing the World Wrestling Federation title. <laughs> I'm going to give you one more chance, one more chance for us to get back together for me. No more chances, Uncle Paul. Tell us now. I have to do this. I have to do this. One more chance, Undertaker. If you do not accept this final offer, I'm going to do something that only you know, Undertaker. A secret that only you know. But I will reveal it to the whole world. It is the secret that I made while I was standing over the graveside of your mother and father. But the question still remains, has Goldust gained his dad's respect? Well, I really don't have any idea. You know, it's, it's been about two years, two and a half years since I've talked to him. I hope he is. Dad, if you're watching, which I know you are, I love you. I hope you're proud of me. But, uh, I mean, I have my family and I'm taking care of them. I'm doing the best that I can possibly do, you know. And, uh... I think that's pretty damn good. Well, I just hope that, uh, the people out there can learn to accept me for now, who, who I am, and, and uh, respect that, and let, let the past settle just a bit. I've got one little stipulation. Each one of your men must be handcuffed to a ring post. Wait a minute. That way, you hit man, and I can settle this thing once and for all. None of your goons jumping in. None of your excuses that we have heard for over a year. We are going to find out once and for all if Brett the Hitman Hart can get beat like a man because Brett, believe me you couldn't go 10 minutes in any situation if you know what I mean oh boy and uh listen here even though, even though lately you've had some sunny days my friend you still can't get the job done. The heartbreak kid coming off a knee injury, you coming off a knee injury, they're all handcuffed. Hitman, I'm going to knock you down and drag you out.
Welcome everyone to the Wrestling 20 Years Ago podcast. My name is Rory McNamara. Thank you for joining me today. This is Volume 2 of our May 1997 run, taking you back in the time machine to look at all things World Wrestling Federation, the second of four volumes for you this month. Volume 1 is our WCW show, taking a look at Slamboree. Volume 3 is ECW, with all the fallout from their barely legal pay-per-view last month. And Volume 4 is USC, but we are Volume 2, looking at the WWF. And with me on this journey, I have... A legend of the game that is Mr. Craig Wilson. Craig, how are you, sir? <laughs> that, that's quite an intro. I appreciate that. I hope I can live up to that billing. I am very well, thanks. How are you? I'm very well, sir. I'm, I'm very well as well. If anybody can live up to it, then it will be you, sir. No pressure. Some, uh, <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah, start strong. Like, be drinking, Rory. <laughs> the, uh, some of the things that are on this show I might uh, might have to reach for a tibble fairly soon But we'll see how we get on So, um, fairly quiet month news-wise But uh, there's one or two things going on Which I will kick off for you very, very, very shortly uh, Our first pay-per-view We'll be looking at a few things as we, as we work through Raw And our main pay-per-view this week will, This month, I should say Will be in your house Cold day in hell But we will get that after the news And I'm starting us off uh, Shawn Michaels dropped a bombshell at the end of this month when he reportedly told Vince McMahon that unless his salary is raised to match that of Bret Hart, he will leave the company. Michaels has four years left on his contract, and nobody really expects McMahon to let him out of it early. There are vague rumblings that Michaels will be the surprise WCW are meeting the next month, but this seems fanciful. That said, with Michaels unhappy at both his wages and the fact he is now seen as third fiddle behind Bret and Steve Austin on TV, it is mooted that McMahon will have to act somehow. This comes after another turbulent few weeks in the Michaels Hart saga. On the 12th of May Raw, a live in-ring angle was shot, in which Michaels would superkick Brett out of and over his wheelchair. Yet Brett braided HBK for so long, very possibly legitimately, that the show actually went off the air before Sean could apply his coup de grace. In another confrontation between the two the next week, Sean went off script to accuse Brett of having sunny days. The two are scheduled to have their long-awaited rematch at King of the Ring on the 8th of June, with the odd stipulation that if Brett doesn't win in 10 minutes, he will never wrestle in the US again. However, given that Brett's knee injury is not yet fully healed, and even aside from Sean's own state of mind, the smart money is on this match not taking place. The four-year honeymoon between Raw and the USA Network might be coming to an end. The channel are making changes to their Monday night schedule this autumn, which could mean WWF's flagship show being moved to a later time slot. The show could even be shifted from Monday night altogether. In an attempt to nip this in the bud, McMahon is reportedly considering approaching one of Rupert Murdoch for a possible slot on Fox Network. Given the very public animosity between Murdoch and Ted Turner, this would be seen as a very volatile move by Vince McMahon. This comes after a lot of negative mainstream press for the WWF, the notable increase in lifelike programming with reference to sex, race and violence becoming commonplace is meeting with much opprobrium. McMahon himself has given interviews to various outlets defending the new direction of his product. This direction includes a notable upturn in shoot-style programming. This includes segments such as the tirade Brett gave Sean, as mentioned earlier, and also sit-down interviews out of character. Towards the end of the month, segments with Mankind talking about his very real past started to air. We will likely talk at length about these on next month's show after they conclude. Also, Goldust, as Dustin Runnels, spoke about his career completely out of character, in which also real backstage events were discussed. We will look closely at this interview shortly. 
Despite bearing his soul on the episode of Raw aired on the 5th of May, Goldust didn't even feature on this month's pay-per-view In Your House, Cold Day in Hell. As so often with WWFB shows, this had a weak undercard, but also played host to a disappointing main event when Undertaker eventually pinned Austin to retain the WWF title. The most notable match on the show was Ken Shamrock, defeating Vader by tap-out in a very hard-hitting contest. Vader suffered injuries to his face so severe that he couldn't wrestle as planned the next day, and even needed fluid drained from his legs following Shamrock's stiff kicks. Also on the show, there were wins for Hunter Hearst Helmsley and Mankind, with Ahmed Johnson being pinned by Farouk in a gauntlet match after himself, first defeating Crush, then Savio Vega. Quick bit of housekeeping before we carry on. We are now on Patreon for $5 a month, or $17 a day, if you're our friend Eric, um, you can uh, send us that way, and you will get each podcast each month as soon as it is ready. The very second it is edited, it will be available for you. You will not need to wait to the end of the month. Or if you just want to drop us, uh, drop us a few coins to thank you, thank, thank us for enriching your lives with uh, retro wrestling, because why wouldn't you, quite frankly? It's patreon.com forward slash wrestling20yrs for all the information there. Before we carry on, I've got the ratings for you for this month. Now, slightly misleading here in a lot of cases. The raw numbers, pun intended, sound pretty good for the WWF, but it must be taken into account that Nitro uh, had its time stop moved around for the NBA playoffs, most notably, and uh, I do believe there were some one-hour shows in there as well. So take these four with a pinch of salt, but the raw numbers for the WWF are still pretty good. Going back to April the 28th, they did a 3.4 to Nitro's logged 2.7. On May the 5th, another 3.4 to Nitro's log to 2.6. May the 12th, 3.2 against a 2.8. May the 19th, a 3.6, their highest out-and-out rating for many a month, against Nitro's log 3.1. However, when normal service was resumed on May the 26th, and the two companies went head-to-head again for the two hours, Nitro came out on top by 3.2 to 2.7. We begin Raw for May on May the 5th with a now five-strong Heart Foundation. Brett, still in his wheelchair, thanks his fans around the world for their support. But as for his American fans, he quotes Shawn Michaels, Tough titty, said the kitty. Their hero Austin is now broken up pile, piece of broken bones, whatever that means, and doesn't have the jam to show up. So now it's time he unleashed the lions on the boy toy. Our first in-ring action sees Ahmed Johnson against Rockabilly. Billy has a guitar shot block, then Ahmed belts him with it for the obvious disqualification. Heart Foundation is shown backstage looking for Shawn Michaels. Owen says he's in the ladies. Another video package airs with this physical and emotional modern-day gladiator that is Ken Shamrock. As soon as he steps into an arena, he goes into the zone. He joins us on commentary for Vader's match with Goldust. Goldust actually passed on Vader at one point, but he soon falls victim to the Vader bomb. Vader spits on Shamrock and they start to rumble. Mankind comes down to help out the Mastodon, but Goldust recovers to help see the heels off. We get a Jim Ross sit-down interview with Dustin Runnels. Dustin never has the chance to never had the chance to emerge from his dad's shadow. Dusty is mentioned by name. We learn that the Goldust character was an attempt for Dustin to find his own destiny, but he still wasn't able to get the respect he had craved for so long. The story of Scott Hall, also mentioned by name, refusing to work with Dustin also gets brought up. That was hugely disappointing for him, but now he has proven them all wrong. He's Dustin, he's living his American dream. Dad, I hope you're proud of me. The foundation are perched outside the men's toilets, somebody wrongly 
Somebody they wrongly think is Sean emerges, but they beat him up anyway. The nation are in the ring, Crush is going to defeat who crawls the three toughest men from the hood. Crush beats two singlet clad laden jobbers, the third man turns out to be a hooded Ahmed Johnson. He hits the Pearl River plunge. The hearts are now outside searching under trucks and in barrels for Sean. Yet here he is for hour number two, coming down to the ring for an interview. The most powerful faction in the business aren't the heart, aren't the foundation, but the click. As for returning to action, that will happen at King of the Ring next month. And Brett, if you don't like America, don't let the hot door hit you in your Canadian butt on the way out. Brett appears on the Titan Tron. He suggests that there's nothing wrong with HBK's knee and puts out a challenge on behalf of the Anvil. Sean accepts, but of course it's a trap. The Foundation beat on HBK until the LOD come to the rescue. The Warriors are now in action against Furnace and Lathon. Backstage, Sean is trying to get to the Foundation, but officials stop him. Bulldog shows up to distract Animal, allowing Owen to snap Hawk's head on the top rope, letting Lathon get the pin. Sean is again trying to get the hearts backstage and now here's Austin, entering through a fire drawer to help. But now we cut back to the arena to see Undertaker's entrance. On the mic he tells us that the WWF has been stolen. Whoever took it will soon to be dearly departed. As for Austin, the flame that is your fury will be extinguished by the darkness. Sonny is here to help shield the Austin 316 shirt, yours for $20 plus shipping and handling shirt that is. Our main event is Bulldog vs Austin. After a decent contest Austin gets a clean win with a stone cold stunner. As soon as the match is over though Owen and Anvil attack Austin with a WWF title belt. The LOD come out back out again to help. Furnace and Lafon then get involved and here's Michaels. Out go the lights. Undertaker appears. Faces eventually clear the ring. Austin poses with the belt but Taker grabs it off him. They then beat on each other until we go off the air. Ladies and gentlemen, Mr. and Mrs. Dustin Runnels. Before there was gold dust, there was Dustin. Dustin Runnels is the son of a wrestler, who was in turn the son of a plumber. As the son of the American dream, Dusty Rhodes, Dustin contended with fans and a demanding road schedule for his father's attention and respect. Nonetheless, he was proud to be the son of the American dream. He was everything that I wanted to be. It was a lot of fun, to, you know, to be with him whenever I was with him, to uh, walk into a restaurant or to a store and, and people would swarm up to him for his autograph, you know, hey, I'm his son, you know, I'm his son. Then as time went on, it got a little old, you know, I wanted some of the attention. And, and people would come up to me and they would say, well, how's your dad? And I'm like, oh, well, you know, he's, I would always be polite. Yeah, he's doing very good. But deep down inside of me, you know, I, I wanted them to say, first, you know, how are you? Then, how's your dad? In a quest to gain his father's respect, Dustin chose to follow in his father's sizable footsteps, but he was never able to emerge from Dusty Rhodes' shadow. I never had the chance, first of all, and everywhere I went, it was like walking right behind him, you know? He had such these, these large shoes to, uh, to step into, and, and I couldn't get there. I couldn't, uh, I couldn't uh, have my own identity because I wasn't allowed. To gain his own identity, Dustin had to walk away from his past. Dustin Reynolds completely reinvented himself. The result? Gold Dust. The most bizarre, controversial, and outrageous superstar in history. In his quest to escape his father's shadow, Dustin took an enormous risk. 
I was scared as hell. I felt like peeing in my pants. I knew that this was going to shock the heck out of people. I knew it. As soon as I walked through the curtain, it did. Man, I had everything thrown at me. Quarters, nickels, dimes. You know, just spit. It was, it was horrible. People would pull my wig off and throw it at me, you know, just cursing, doing everything in the book at me. I was like, my God, going back to the past a little bit. You know, I'd, I never got that respect. And I, I wanted it so bad. And finally, when I got a chance to do something new, and, and here's gold dust, you know, ran spanking new. And I still didn't get the respect right off the bat. And I was, I was let down. I was scared. I was frustrated. And he her and I would very disappointed. And, yeah. You know, what do I do? Is this, you know, have I really flubbed? And, you know, he and I both talked about, do you let someone else's insecurities trip you up and keep you from being what do you want to be? Do I strive forth? Take care of my family, take care of business. Right. As my dad used to always say, take care of business. But taking care of business was not easy. A superstar once known for his machismo refused to wrestle him. Well, that uh, that hurt pretty bad. You know, that hit me below the waist. You know, I, I, I couldn't understand that. Um, oh, and like I said, with, I mean, not only Scott Hall, but uh, he was the main one. That, that, but... I mean, all the um, the minority, the minorities out there, the gays and, you know, whoever, just, I got so many letters and, and I can understand, you know, I can kind of, I can kind of, uh, I kind of know what they're going through now, you know, it's, and God bless them. Through perseverance and success, Goldust has gained acceptance. And now, Dustin Rhodes can finally assume his own identity. I mean, this is the, this is the greatest thing that's ever happened to us. I'm, I'm kind of glad that uh, we've come out of the closet. I mean, this is, I'm, I'm Dustin, you know. I put that, that gold suit on right there, it's, I'm gold Dustin. There's no other gold Dustin. They said it couldn't be done, and I did it. I proved them wrong. And it's the greatest feeling in the world. I can, I can understand how Ellen feels, you know, to... We kind of came out of the closet in a different way, To come out of the closet holding that microphone and telling the people, you know, we come out a complete different way, but it feels very good. I'm living my own dream right now, my own American dream. I have a wonderful wife, wonderful daughter, wonderful character, gold dust. I couldn't feel any happier. I've got all the people out there that uh, now understand gold dust, where he came from, and so it's, it's a good feeling. But the question still remains, has Goldust gained his dad's respect? Well, I really don't have any idea. You know, it's, it's been about two years, two and a half years since I've talked to him. I hope he is. Dad, if you're watching, which I know you are, I love you. I hope you're proud of me. But, uh, I mean, I have my family and I'm taking care of them. I'm doing the best that I can possibly do, you know. And, uh... I think that's pretty damn good. Well, I just hope that, uh, the people out there can learn to accept me for now, who, who I am, and, and uh, respect that, and let, let the past settle just a bit. One thing for us to look at before we tackle this month's pay-per-view, and that is the 
shoot star interview that took place with Dustin Ronalds, as he was named on air. Took place about halfway through the May the 5th edition of Raw. And it was aired, rather confusingly you might think, immediately after he had taken a 1-2-3 clean loss to Vader in the middle of the ring. (laughs) Build him up, why don't you? In this interview, he said completely out of character, his wife, who who we know as Marlena, was regularly called her, Terry was there uh, by his side. And he was talking about how his dad helped get him started in the business, named as Dusty Rhodes. The American Dream Dusty Rhodes, that phraseology was used during the piece and how he had to work to get out of his father's shadow. We even heard about something which only really sheet readers would have known about, or listeners to this podcast, of course, that Scott Hall, and he was named as Scott Hall, refused to work with Goldust during their frisson, let's call it that, at the end of 95 and early 1996. That had never been mentioned anywhere near WWF TV before. And this interview to me came completely out of the blue. Goldust has been bumping along as a babyface since he turned at the end of last year. So, Craig, what did you think of what was actually presented, what was actually said? And as an extension of that, what we mentioned in the news, that the WWF seems to be bringing a lot more, quote-unquote, realism into their programming. What do you think? Yeah, I, I, I mean, the, the most immediate thing that jumped out was just how completely different this was it wasn't the usual backstage 80s I'm going to beat him in the ring type stuff it was really sort of pulling back the curtain and and revealing a a sort of more of a story about Goldust than I guess we really ever knew except as you mentioned if you read the dirt sheets or if you really followed his career quite closely but with his new sort of babyface run, I guess it sort of makes uh, a bit of sense to to have him do this. But yeah, I, th- I think the sort of biggest thing takeaway for me was just sort of pulling back the curtain and just exposing the the business for what it is. Really, yeah, it was very surprising. Absolutely, very surprising. It was so brazen as well. It was JR after he'd taken that clean loss. Now we can look at the real gold dust, and here he is out of makeup in his dressing room talking about his life and his career. We, we got clips of the match when he teamed up with Dusty to take on Ted DiBiase and Virgil, I believe, from Royal Rumble 91. That has never previously been referenced in Goldust canon at all, and I never thought it would be. I've got to say, in regards of the more realistic approach, they need to be very careful here. We've talked at length on this show many times where there's been a lot of nudge-nudge-wink-wink things where they haven't been completely over the top about it. Some of Diesel's comments to Vince McMahon turning him into a puppet back in 95. Even the Scott Bigelow stuff a few months before that. I'm talking explicitly about WWF here. On the WCW, it's pretty much fair game every week. So it's still something the WWF are dipping their toe into. And imagine, be, uh, I was going to say, I would imagine it'd be very confusing for a lot of viewers, totally just sort of catching them off guard, the, the sort of very different approach. And yeah, I mean, I, I mean, obviously some of the sort of uh, more clued up, if you will, would have known who Goldust was, but for some it would have been a surprise. And yeah, it was just, I, I was just sort of taken, I, I, really just taken aback by the whole thing. I don't think anybody was expecting it. The fact that Dustin Runnels, his father aside, isn't the most interesting and captivating of real-life interviews anyway. 
compare that to the Mankind thing, which I say we'll probably get into a lot more next month. I mean, it's, it's absolute night and day. It's as if they thought they had to choose somebody to peel back the curtain on, and they went with Goldust because he's pretty much flatlined as a babyface. Maybe this will help get him over a bit. And it must be said, the reactions he has got since these two interviews aired, they've been a far cry from the tepid responses he was getting through March and April. And the reason that's been happening, in my opinion, is because he has pretty much been aping Dusty Rhodes. He's been there, he's been doing the struts, breaking out the bionic elbow, giving us the flip-flop and fly, all of that. JR in particular has been keen to make that point on commentary. So it makes you wonder, just what was sticking with Goldust specifically, Craig, is even the Goldust character now, if they want to try to add extra layers, which I think is a good idea and he needs something, is the Goldust character itself now almost completely passe? It's it's increasingly becoming so. The if you look at the distance it's it's come since he debuted from the very risky and completely out of uh, place character back then to the sort of surprisingly when you consider how the business has moved on the the sort of I wouldn't quite go as far as saying Goldust's vanilla but. In relation to how he first appeared, he, he, he almost certainly is. But I, I totally agree with your point in relation to adding extra layers. I think that's very much uh, required. The, the act was getting a bit stale. It's a surprise turn. I mean, the, the, I, I guess they could have went and made him a bit darker. And I don't, I'm not entirely sure if that would be any more or less successful than this will be. But they've, they've taken a different approach, to, a novel approach to it. And, yeah, it's, it's, it's going to be interesting to see what, what difference this makes to the character. It's probably not the, the most straightforward or easiest way to have uh, rebooted, if you will. But uh, I guess the WWF deserves some credit for for uh, going out there and trying something different to, uh, to get him a wee bit of uh, the big mole behind them. I think that's it. I think WWF have realised to at least some degree that fans aren't going to just accept somebody as a baby face because backstage we've decided this guy's going to be a baby face and the guys out there are going to like him. End of story. There is somebody we will talk about when we get to the pay-per-view who that very much applies to. So maybe they are finally starting to realise, yeah, you know exactly what I mean, finally starting to realise that fans just won't accept anybody willy-nilly. You can't you can't just click a switch and the fans are going to take to somebody. There has to be a reason. Now, Quite if they do, they do try and play it up where Dustin is trying to escape from his dad's shadow without making too much play of Dusty Rose being Dusty Rose, because let's face it, he does still work for another company. And I went through the sheets. There's virtually nil chance of him jumping ship anytime soon. He's very happy doing what he's doing, baby. So we can rule that one out. So they try and play it up as a story where he's just trying to escape from his father's own let's say let's say let's say clutches in this respect and make it a more general story, then that's something they could really go with Goldust. And I do think the fans will respond to that. Because we've said it before on this on this podcast, his babyface work in WCW, really, really good. He plays the upper nuts and babyface on his last legs really well. If he's going to keep the Goldust character, that might hamper him a bit. But from what we have seen, certainly after these interviews aired, that's the kind of tack they seem to be taking. And I hope for his sake, because I do like him as a worker, despite his him not having much on the microphone. He's a good worker. He can do still do a good job in the upper-ish mid-card. If that's the route they take, then they could still could get something good with this guy as a face. Because I think the reason they turned him in the first place is they thought 
they had something straight away with him. Didn't happen the way they wanted. They're trying again. Credit to them for that, and I do hope it works. All of that said, he didn't even appear on the pay-per-view, which took place the next week. So that's the WWF for you. But we're now going to look in detail at this month's pay-per-view offering in your house, Cold Day Hell. Craig, give us the results, please, mate. Yeah, absolutely. In the opening match, Hunter Hearst Helmsley uh, with China defeated Flash Funk in just over 10 minutes. In the second match, uh, which might come as a bit of a surprise result, Mankind defeated Rocky Maivia. I'm sure we're going to come back to that in more detail. The third match was a gauntlet match pitting Ame Johnston against the Nation of Domination members Crush, Savio Vega and Farouk in that order and although he was able to defeat Crush and then Savio Vega he finally succumbed to Farouk. The next match was Ken Shamrock against Vader in a no holds barred match which Ken Shamrock won by submission in just shy of 15 minutes and in the main event the WWF champion Undertaker defeated Stone Cold Steve Austin in a 20-minute barnstorm. What were your thoughts on this show, Craig? <sighs> when you look at a lot of shows around about this time, you, you you see some guys that you look at and you're like, there's a bright future for this guy, but he's not there yet. And you saw that dotted along the card with your sort of Hunter Hearst Helmsley and your Rocky Maivias and the like. So you're like, all right, they were sort of treading water, not treading water exactly, but some of these guys are a bit away from the finished product. But we've got a, we've got a, we'll have a top main event. This is only $20 a month show, so we'll get a great match in the end. But this sort of broke the mould by not only not having that strong an undercard, but also not having a great main event. It, it just it kind of felt flat throughout. It, it did. I mean, you, you referenced earlier on this being a, a B show, uh, and so, sometimes for then your houses that seems harsh. But I almost think that's sort of uh, very generous to describe this as a B show after sitting through this show. Yes, by the time we've gone through this, I might want to drop down the alphabet a bit further than B. This was flat <laughs> as this was flat as a pancake as a show. It wasn't even passable as a house show in my opinion, and it didn't even have that big main event. You can sit through an hour of torpid 10 to 12 minute nothing matches where nothing counts between nothing people and we had that. Boy did we have that. Yet we had no real payoff. The only match which I would recommend going back to see anybody who was perhaps fortunate enough to miss this event was watchable by accident rather than design for a lot of other reasons which we'll get to. And this had a main event which not only never clicked in my opinion it should never even have really happened. And this was the ultimate BCD show, which didn't even have the pickup towards the end that the equally awful first hour worth Revenge of the Taker had. So anyway, citizens, stay with us and we will try and make it fun for you. <laughs> in your house, cold day in hell, we get the now traditional black and white video package to start. Plenty of remarks from both Undertaker and Austin here. The likes of, you can fight it, but you can't survive it. And Undertaker is going to have the coldest day in hell. Convenient. After that, JR wishes us a very happy Mother's Day. It is he and Laura on the call tonight. Our attention is drawn to five empty seats in the front row, supposedly bought by the Hart Foundation from a scalper. More on that later. Flash Funk now. He has the Funkettes. He doesn't have the Funkettes with him. They've been taken off him. In storyline, that's because China was supposedly threatening them. They've actually been taken off him because he is not in the good graces of the company right now. But he is here to take on Hunter Hurst Helmsley. 
who is announced by JR as, and I quote, a friend of John F. Kennedy Jr. I'm not even touching that one. So our first match with no real build, no real build-up, no real reason to happen, Flash Funk versus Triple H. They exchange shoves and Flash grabs a headlock. We get the international, then he hits a hip toss and a drop kick into an arm drag takeover. Funk continues to work the arm and he hits a nice reverse leg takedown and another drop kick. Close line off the second rope onto Triple H on the floor. Funk gets in the ring to sadly a very tepid crowd reaction. China belts him from behind, Ben Hunter assumes control. Two Mr. Wrestling 2 knee lifts, followed by punches and stomps in the corner. China hits Funk outside of the ref view and that gets a two count. Suplex by Hunter, then he poses to mild booze. He drops the knee for two, then he hits another knee lift to the stomach and I would suggest he's probably out of ideas here. Then what do you know? He gives Flash Funk a Mr. Wrestling 2 knee lift. <laughs> Followed by a fifth, which finally knocks Flash off the apron. Oh, five knee lifts in a row, man. Come on. He then goes up to the top solely and purely so Funk can block it with his foot, one of our most hated spots in all the professional wrestling. Spinning leg sweep knocks Hunter down, then a backdrop. A flash hits a rope-assisted leg drop, sort of a 0.3 on the tumble-wheel scale, and he gets a two-count for that. Crossbody off the top, but he releases before going for the pin. Standing spinning heel kick, then he calls for the funky flash flash at the 450. Hunter blocks and then crotches him. A front belly-to-back suplex off the second rope by Hunter, of all things, in which Flash took flat on his face, followed by the pedigree and the three for the completely clean win. After the match, China lifts up Funk, then dumps him onto, then over, the top rope. Your thoughts, Craig? It was a bit of a knee fest. Uh, I, I feel... I feel desperately sorry for Flash Funk. There's clearly a worker in there and he's just been saddled with a crap gimmick and it got to the stage that the only thing anyone really cared about was the the Funkettes and now they've been ditched. It does just seem like a, a very horrible future for Flash Funk as he sort of drops further into obscurity uh, than he is. Hunter Hearst Helmsley has shown some progress but uh, as you uh, identified in uh, explicit detail in your uh, roundup there, he's still quite limited and he doesn't seem to quite know how to put a match together, I guess. Uh, maybe he needs to rub off someone a wee bit more experienced, although you could argue that Flash Funk has plenty of experience. But yeah, you, you, this sort of warm the, warm the crowd up, unless you really liked these shots. You like knee shots, you had the treat of your life here, you had five and you had the actual knee drop as well. Yeah. Match of the year contender if you love knee moves. <laughs> A knee main event anywhere in the country. <laughs> yeah. Hunter is, I, I'm almost, I'm as bored of talking about it as I am of watching him. Hunter is just so dull in the ring. He's, he doesn't know how to get heat. His style is monotonous and tepid. His moveset is in just third day of wrestling school stuff. His finisher is good, thank goodness, otherwise he would have absolutely nothing. Yet, because of, if you have friends in high place like he does, and for whatever reason the company are clearly sky high on him, they're going to kill themselves to try and get this guy over. And it must be said, he is now getting big reactions, or rather, his act is getting big reactions, because China is with him, and China beating up on other wrestlers is always a guaranteed pop. So in that respect, the partnership does make sense. 
Yeah, it's through nothing that Hunter is doing. This is the probably think long-term listeners could easily come to the conclusion I've got a vendetta against him. And to some degree, they'd be right. <laughs> I hate his gimmick. He bores the hell out of me. He's got nothing on the mic. Yeah, I fear this is only the start, as if, if uh, McMahon and others have got anything to go with. Flash Funk, yeah, you're, you're right, Craig. Crying shame, this guy is so talented. But I said it when he signed back in October. He was going to be used as an opening match guy and no better. A few flashy moves to get a few oohs and ahs, and then he'd be forgotten about ten minutes later. And that's exactly where we are. A real waste of what he's capable of. An occasionally sloppy worker, as you've seen as ECW work, no doubt, but undoubtedly, equally undoubtedly, very, very exciting. He can certainly talk, particularly as a heel. Maybe there might be some, some droplets in that that people might want to consider, but I just don't see it happening. And like I said in the blurb there, for whatever reason, he's not in the company's good grace at the moment. He said the fun gets taken off him. He was not happy about jobbing in this match, and that's why, despite even losing, China was still able to get some stuff on him. And uh, it doesn't look good for the guy, I'm afraid to say. But the Hunter juggernaut just keeps on creeping on and on and on. <laughs> Wake up, Rory. Come on. Come on. This is only the first match. Here's some UFC footage of Ken Shamrock. That will help. He joined us for an interview on the video wall. He is focused and in his zone. We get some brief footage from the free-for-all earlier of Mankind Invader attacking him. After a recap of Mankind's own pyromania from a few weeks ago on Raw, we get an interview with Todd Pettengill, who I don't think we've seen since the Royal Rumble. Craig, am I right in saying that? Yeah, it was, it was certainly a surprise to see him back. I was like, where have you been? Type thing, yeah. It's been a while. Doc, dear old Doc been doing the backstage interviews recently? Ah, yes. I don't know which one's worse. Well... <laughs> Todd, I think, I'm always going to defend Todd to a slight degree. I'm not going to take long listens on this one, don't worry. One thing I do like about Todd, he does ask questions that are pertinent to the feud. He doesn't just there mug for the camera to be humiliated by the baby faces and threatened by the heels. But the guy's just so gawky and geeky, dishing for any kind of praise there is, uh, is a challenge at best. But I always try to be kind, especially on this show. But here he is talking to Rocky Maivia. Rocky seems perhaps a little more serious than before. He himself says, and I think he's right, that maybe his own success came a bit too soon. He learns a lot going up, but he's going to say he's going to learn even more going down. Self-fulfilling prophecy there much? He emerges to a reaction somewhere between Jack and shit. And then here we go. He is taking on Mankind. Mankind sits and rocks in the corner. Rocky cuts off a sneak attack and hits a drop kick in a clothesline. We spill outside Mankind back with a back rake. He assumes control with one or two kicks. Irish whip, then Rocky hits a nice power slam and cinches in a hammerlock. Leverage move by Mankind and Rocky is out to the floor. The captain's jack cracks and follows and that puts Rocky down. Punches in the corner of the crowd are pretty listless, I'm afraid. Here's JR on commentary. Mankind says he's a loving father. A father of what? Moving swiftly on. A double clothesline puts both men down. They regroup, then Mankind takes a few right hands out on the ramp. JR calls him the mayor of parts unknown. Long Island. The audience wake up a little when Rocky executes the big Urinagi slam right out on the ramp. JR again. How do you learn to fall on a steel grating? Rocky dumps Mankind back in the ring and he gets a two count, which all starts from a belly-to-belly suplex and an inside cradle. Clothesline from behind knocks Mankind down. Shoulder breaker, TM, follows, but Rocky doesn't go for the cover. Oh, come on, Rocky, that was a surefire three. Instead, he goes up top for another crossbody, but Mankind rolls through into a mandible claw. Rocky is out for the count. Jack Dunn calls for the bell, 
and Mankind secures the win to a sizeable pop. Craig. R.I.P. the Rocky Maivia experiment. It just seems absolutely done. Which is kind of strange when, I mean, don't get me wrong, it's been terrible. Fans have just shat all over it. But it almost felt like they were trying to sort of make Rocky Maivia a tad more edgy here. The, I mean, the slam on the on the ramps, it, it just seemed a wee bit more heelish. It, oh, oh, you almost sort of felt like uh, at the end he would get his hand raised and then maybe, I don't know, turn on the crowd, if, if you will. But yeah, just I guess it just they've just cut the legs out from under the Rocky Maya V experiment. Uh, it'll be interesting to see where it goes now, but yeah, yeah, I, this did nothing. I mean, we were critical of the... Uh, Triple H's uh, limited move set, but I don't think you can say much uh, about uh, my ideas that's any more complimentary. Do you think they should out and out turn him heel as soon as possible? We're going to have to do something, and uh, it's fair to say that the the babyface approach didn't work. The, I mean, the, the the way that they did it was was terrible. I mean, ever since the smiley happy. Go lucky nonsense from the '96 Survivor Series. The crowd just have not bought into to Rocky Maivia at all. There's no story around him. It's just that look, he's a baby face. He's smiling, cheer him, and that might have worked. I don't know, five, maybe even as little as five years ago. But in '97, it was just shot on, and, and quite rightly so. And whatever whatever happens now will have to be quite sort of drastic. They can't just sort of they can't just sort of uh, tinker around the edges here. They have to they have to go one way properly with Maya or get rid. If they're going to keep him around, they're going to have to out and out turn him. And let's face it, they've got a lot of natural reasons to turn him and do it pretty quickly. He did show a bit more edge here in his interview and in the ring. Yeah, if they're just going to try and make him an edgy baby face, or well, everybody's an edgy baby face these days, and he's not going to rise up the ladder doing that, there are at least five or six people ahead of him and will stay ahead of him. So a, a drastic rethink is needed. I would imagine that Vince is probably very reluctant to turn him heel. But as you say, Craig, this is Vince's experiment failing. And he's got to act on this. The fact that six months on, he even dropped the IC title. I wonder if they thought dropping the IC title, which he won far too soon in his career, they thought you know, the, the money's in the chase and all that and fans might come back to him after a few five months being hotshot to it. But that hasn't happened. It's not like he's being booed out of every building either. It's kind of a Luger 94-95 thing where the fans just don't care. And apathy is almost worse than hate in many ways, especially if you're getting a reaction, you're getting something from the crowd. But he's just getting nothing at all now. And yeah, I, I would agree. I, I, yeah, the, I, I would say that the apathy would, would was worse than anything. I mean, at least if you really hate someone, you've got a you care. But you, you look in the audience, and it's just blank, bored faces. Uh, yeah, I mean, if they, if they if they really hated them, then. It becomes a comfort for the WWF, but it's just like, oh God, this guy again type stuff. Yeah, it's grim. They just grim for to go away, and I don't, I don't blame them. The match was okay. It did have its moments. So that big Urinagi slam on the ramp was very nice. It's, uh, this was Mankind doing 
pared down mankind stuff. I really like the finish. We've seen the fried body press off the top rope into a pin many, many times. So seeing it fried body press off the top rope into a submission move, something very new. And the mandible claw, but done such a good job of getting that move over. When the mandible claw's on, unless you're a real A grader, then the match is done. As soon as he hooked that on, the crowd knew that the match was going to end. And that's when you've got a, a fantastic finisher. Which is nothing more vexation than sticking your fingers down somebody's mouth. But if it works, go with it. Things don't have to be rocket science. And the pop mankind got at the end of the match, I wouldn't say it blew the, the roof off the place, but for somebody who is still at this place, place in time being booked very much as a heel, it's very, very noticeable. The interviews he has been doing in the Mankind character, he's been talking about his real background as Mick Foley. I would imagine that they're going to be using those to go all the way and turn him face pretty soon. So there's so much we could possibly talk about with these interviews. There's a lot more to come. I think we're going to have a big section of that in our show next month if they continue as I think they're going to. So yes, a possible Mankind babyface turn could be in the works. And I think there has to be one for Rocky soon. They've got to do something because otherwise Vince cannot afford another 100% failed experiment. He's walking on thin ice as it is. They say this guy knows what he's got to act. He's really got to act. Here come the Nation of Domination. PG-13 does the, do their usual live rap, but for whatever reason, they are miles off the beat this time. Farouk emerges with his arm in a sling. I wonder if that's going to play into anything. Ahmed is backstage with our friend Todd. He will fight all three members of the Nation in order. If Farouk is any kind of man, he will step into the ring first. Tonight, somebody is going to end. In our usual Ahmed. Ahmed English, let's call it that. Ahmed Johnson himself emerges to a nice spot. Gorilla Monsoon walks down to ringside to sort out any confusion and demands to know who's going to start the match. Crush gets nominated and he sends the rest of the nation, including Savio and Farouk, away from ringside. Should say before we start, there was talk in the Observer that the original plan for this this gauntlet match, that the three matches were going to take place sprinkled throughout the show. And luckily, they got them all out in all out in one go to preempt my views on this one. I don't think I could have taken Armour Johnson emerging to his music three times. Thank you very much. The, the right decision was made, apart from to go out with the match anyway. So here we go. If Armour wins three matches against the Nation, they must supposedly disband. But that was never really played up at this point. I'm going to rattle through these fairly quickly because obvious reasons. Uh, Armour V crushes our first one. He knocks Crush down and punches away. Axe kick followed, followed by a body slam. He misses an elbow. Crush hits a super kick, which actually misses by an absolute mile. The crowd are dead because they know it's not going to end until the third match anyway. Ahmed with a really sloppy gourd buster gets a two count. That looked terrible. Crush with a main event sleeper in the middle of the show. JR tells us that the big Johnson is hard to handle. Speak for yourself. The arm drops twice and Ahmed fights out. Uh, inside cradle for two, followed by a pile driver of sorts for Crush. He calls down the nation, but they decline. Ahmed hops out of the heart punch with a heel kick. One, two, three. There goes Crush. Here comes Savio limping to the ring. Ahmed meets him with punches and a quick back body drop. Irish whip reversal and Savio with a spin kick. Shock. He's no longer limping. He was feigning the injury. Weak shots to the kidneys from Savio. Ahmed gets sent to the buckles and Savio is in control. But all he can do is just kick, 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 kick. The crowd sort of get behind Ahmed as Savio hits a fucking nerve hold. Come on now, man. Ahmed eventually up after what feels like forever with a hip toss. 
He then goes for a really awkward splash off the second rope, which he, and he landed on his side. I don't think Ahmed knows how to actually do one. He wins a slugfest, and Savio hits a turnbuckle. Side suplex for a two-count, and then we get a power slam. Savio rolls outside rather than take the Pearl River plunge, and he kicks Ahmed in the face. He grabs a chair, grabs a chair hits a shot, and that is a DQ. He then follows up with more shots with the chair, which would make Lance Storm blush. And now Farouk will be next for our final match. Farouk removes his sling. He's not injured either. Somebody sue the road agent. Flash cradle for Ahmed, but he only gets a two count. Spine buses to Farouk, and now the crowd are finally starting to get into this. He hits the Pearl River plunge, but he can't cover straight away. Delayed pin only gets two. Farouk is up and he's recovered very, very quickly. Chop block, dominator, good night. And we are done just like that. Ahmed has failed in more ways than one. Craig. Oh, this was shit, wasn't it? Absolutely terrible. Uh, I like to think that Savio just got so bored of this, he was like, fuck this, and just melted Ahmed Johnson with a, with a chair in the face. Uh, looking back, it's not only boring, but it's completely pointless. I mean, like you say, the crowd knew wholeheartedly that this wasn't going to end the first fall wasn't going to finish in the second fall it was always going to go to the third fall and it doesn't take an edit to work out that it was going to be Farouk uh, yeah what, what's the point in all this why didn't why didn't Crush go for the the kidneys like Savio did considering all the injuries he's had frankly the double entendre from JR is probably one of the, the few interesting things of this it's the, you, you cited the uh, the steel chair shots looking terrible, but I mean, Christ, Anna Johnson's offense is just horrible. It just looks really brutal. Not in a sort of Vader Ken Shamrock way that we'll discuss. It, it looks hard hitting. Just looks dangerous. And oh God, it's awful. Anna Johnson, terrible. Nation of domination beyond Farouk, terrible. Tell us what you really think, Craig. Yeah, but yeah, absolutely. Truly dire. I don't think anybody expected it to be anything else than dire. That's only because we had very low expectations. And in that case, well, they weren't even met there. But just awful. Crush and Savio are just atrocious workers. No, no. Oh, Blow my bloody head. No stable worth their salt would have people who crush and Savio in it. You just wouldn't because they're just awful. If, if you're looking from aside from kayfabe here, why would you want them in your team? They've done nothing in their past. They've offered nothing. They are nothing. Ahmed freaking Johnson is not the person to carry them. They just make me lose much like Ahmed himself. The power of speech when I'm, when I'm with them. I just... I cannot comprehend how anybody could allow this to happen. Ahmed is a... I think we can finally say now after 18 months, Craig, Ahmed Johnson is a a poor, poor worker. All of his stuff, stuff looks rubbish and it looks dangerous, which is the worst combination you come up with. I mean, that's splash. A splash, okay, he was booked to miss it. But what on earth was that? I mean, the whole point of a splash that you're leaping off, your arms are out, your legs are out, and you land, you land on your chest and on your stomach. Here, it was meant to be a splash. I called it a splash. But you sort of accidentally wasn't intended moved 90 degrees and landed half on his right hand and half on his side 
it just if you can't do a splash, you should be nowhere near the ring, in my opinion. And there was no drama in this match because everybody knew he was going to get past Crush and Savio. Even the markiest marks in Markdom knew that. <laughs> and furthermore, they never really played up the supposed stipulation that if Ahmed was to win, the nation would disband. There was no situation in this match where you had JR on commentary saying, it's come down to Farouk, if Ahmed wins this, we won't see the nation again. So whether that was quietly dropped or not, I don't know. So not that it mattered anyway, because... I don't think anybody really expected Ahmed to win this. And judging by their promos on Raw, this feud must continue. Lucky us. Yeah, just <laughs> awful. Farouk's the only person there with any working chops. And even his best work was five, six, seven years ago. I fear we're going to be seeing a lot, lot more of this. It's been going on forever. And why do people not listen to this podcast? Back in December, it seems it was a very long time ago, back in December we said that Ahmed and Farouk at the Royal Rumble should be ten minutes one and done. Armour hits the PRP and he moves on. Yet here we are, up to six months later, and this feud is rolling on. They're trying to bring more more racial angles into it, getting themselves into hot water for the sake of this angle, which nobody cares about. Ahmed has completely lost his chip with the fans now, and it's a real, real mess. A year ago, I would have thought a certainty that Ahmed would ascend to the biggest of heights in the company and might well have been the first ever black WWF champion. That now seems like a total pipe dream. What a mess. Saved from an almost certain birth in worst match of the year in seven months' time by virtue of there being three terrible matches. And that's three more to talk about. And nobody in their right mind wants that. Awful, awful, awful. And here's Todd Pettengill. <laughs> He's talking to Vader. Right, come on, this is going to cheer me up. When Vader attacked Ken Shamrock in the free-for-all earlier, he was just playing with him. Ken Shamrock knows nothing about pain. It is indeed Vader time. Here's Howard Finkel to give us the stipulations for this match, which is our semi-main event. There are no pinfalls, and you can only win by submission or knockout. We also get an accompanying graphic on... Yet on commentary, JR makes great play of informing us this is not the case. So there is no stunning eight count. Somebody's getting fired in the back for that one. Shamrock emerges to a very nice reaction. Tim White is our referee, and away we go. Ken Shamrock's WWF debut against Vader. Stay with me, folks. This is a biggie. Shamrock adopts the fighting stance, you know the one I mean, and he teases some kicks. He goes for a leg dive, but both guys hit the ropes. Shamrock lands some kicks to the leg, and boy, did those kicks connect. Vader yelled, yes, yelled out in pain when they hit him. Here's the king on commentary. This match is like Muhammad Ali versus Antonio Inoki. Jerry, that match was appalling. Don't go there. Shamrock with a wrist lock and Vader again is yelling out in pain. Vader with some forearms, but the ref breaks them up. Shamrock with a waist lock and we're back in the ropes. Crowd are stunned by this. They're really not sure what to make of this. They know they're getting something far from the ordinary. More mega kicks from Shamrock and a waistlock takedown, which was close to a Salto suplex. Vader takes a powder, and I do believe he's in some real pain here. He's favouring his arm. Vader hits the charge, then some body shots. Shamrock with another takedown, and this time Vader isn't selling it. We stall again for a while, and Vader with some punches. Irish whip, but Shamrock converts off that into a rolling leg takedown, but again Vader escapes. And once more, he runs to the outside. We then catch Vader hiding his mouth whilst talking to Tim White. I'm pretty sure he says to him, too much, too much. More on that in a second. 
more big kicks from Ken. God, these are hurting me now. Vader dumps Ken on his feet. I don't think that was the planned landing. Then he just clotheslines him to keep him down. He holds in an arm lock when Shamrock rolls into a triangle choke. That was beautiful. Vader picks him up from that, but rather than just execute a powerbomb, British Bulldog style, he just sort of rolls him over. I don't know what they were going for there, really. Vader lifts Ken for a suplex, but he just hurls him down over the ropes right to the floor. The biggest gourd buster you will ever see. Big punches in the aisle way, and Vader is legitimately pissed off now. He creams him in the corner, then he hooks on an ankle lock. Shamrock rolls out of it, but Vader is right back with a choke. A whip that a Vader attack into the corner. He goes for a body slam, and here comes the Vader. No, it's not the Vader bomb. It's the moonsault. In a sadly botched spot, Shamrock was meant to move, yet he didn't roll far enough away, and he, Vader actually caught Shamrock in the head, clearly knocking Shamrock for a loop for a few seconds. When he recovers, Ken rallies with, oh yes, the big kicks, and a huge power slam. He hooks on another leg lace and Vader gets into the ropes. Shamrock with the forearm of all forearms right to the face. He is not pulling them. Vader's had enough at this point and he creams Ken with a very stiff clothesline come punch, which is basically his way of saying, oh no, you bloody well don't, pal. Shamrock recovers very quickly into an ankle lock and Vader taps out to signify the end of the match. Shamrock celebrates that he looks pretty beaten up as well. We see a sign in the audience telling us that Mike Tyson is a coward. Vader gets some deserved applause as he limps away, and rightly so, as Shamrock celebrates in the ring. Craig, since we begun our journeys into our time machines nearly four years ago, well, WCW likes to mix things up. Vader himself is no stranger to working snug in his past. Yet, as far as the Federation is concerned, we've never seen anything like this, have we? No, absolutely not. This is this is quite. This is actually just quite a remarkable match. I mean, we 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 probably we do know that that it wasn't designed to be like this. I mean, it's quite clear that Ken Shamrock isn't used to. Uh, a, an actual wrestling match and isn't pu- pulling any of his strikes. He's fully connected with everything. It's 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 honestly just remarkable. I I I love my, my f- so I know we should probably do this chronologically, but I love it right at the end. The 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 shot that Vader hits is almost like something out of Street Fighter that should send your opponent like a hundred feet into the air before collapsing at the end. He's just had enough of. Been relentlessly having the piss beaten out of him the whole match. It's it's genuinely absolutely fascinating. I mean, I can understand why they paired Vader with Ken Shamrock duty, as you say, uh, how Vader work uh, history of working snug. But there's working snug and there's beating the absolute crap out of someone, and that's what Ken Shamrock does. I mean, it could have it could have got him quite dangerous if if Vader had just. I, I know Vader comes very close to being like, fuck this, but I mean, if he totally lost it and completely went off script and just, oh God, this could have just been horrendous. But uh, thanks to some uh, levels of restraint, uh, which uh, Vader deserves some credit for, this is just a remarkable piece of uh, WWF TV. It's I'm almost lost for words watching this compared to, you know, when you go back uh, several months and you're seeing 
uh, Henry Godwin fighting Triple H in the Hogpen match, and you fast forward to this, and you've got two two big fighting men just pummeling each other. It's quite it's quite quite remarkable, and you can example of your ECW where the the fighting's more more realistic and. And we talk about the sort of introduction of the pull the curtain back uh, interviews, but whilst there, there may be an element of design about the WWF moving into a more uh, realistic uh, zone, I, I don't think that I, I would be staggered if this was by design. This is this is by accident, but it, it's insanely good. It's genuinely fantastic. But I would not I would not want Ken Shamrock kicking me on the legs. Or anyway, first things first, Craig, congratulations on getting our customary reference to a video game in, which is now becoming a monthly thing, <laughs> much to our box program, but somebody's got to do it, so you, you beat me to the punch on that one. Oh my goodness me, I've, one of the reasons I'm such a fan of uh, professional wrestling is the fact that so often when it's done right and at its very best, it looks like people are destroying each other, mm-hmm. yeah, you know really, they're going to be okay. This was yeah. two people destroying each other. And as we know from the news earlier, Vader in particular was not okay after this. His face <laughs> exploded from Shamrock's punches. He needed to have fluid drained from his legs from Shamrock's kicks. And I can guarantee you, you will never see a match like this in the WWF ever again. They could keep Ken Shamrock around for 30 years. And I give you my word, as soon as this match was done, somebody came up to him in the back, tapped him on the shoulder and said, Ken... Impressive debut, mate. We're never going to forget it, but just tone it down a bit next time, yeah? This was incredible. Ken Shamrock is no stranger to worked professional wrestling in the United States. He did some work for the NAWA way back in 1990 under the name Vince Torelli. So he's not, this isn't complete anathema for him. So he did a lot of work in Japan with Pancrase, and let's face it, they sure like to lay it in. And of course, after three or four years in UFC, you're going to bring some of that with you. And in that respect, I can see why they put him in with Vader for his first match. Yet even Vader himself, who loves to lay things in, this is a person who took great delight in legitimately breaking Mick Foley's nose on an episode of WCW Saturday Night four years ago. Even he had no idea what he was getting in for. So after about two or three minutes after some of those kicks, when he was filling to the outside, Vader wasn't selling there. He was really trying to get his own bearings. And there was... I mentioned it there in the play-by-play. He walks up, walks up the steps, he covers his own mouth, yet he's shouting. So he's not even being professional here, but in a way you can't blame him. He's shouting at Tim White. He's saying, too much, too much. Clearly the reference there being, Tim, tell Ken just to stop doing this a bit and give me a bit of a chance here, yeah? Yeah, Shamrock just upped it and upped it and upped it. Some talk after this match in the sheets about whether Shamrock was laying it in because he felt Vader was disrespecting him or they were given leeway to get rough and Shamrock just took it a bit too far. I'm not so sure about that. Apparently, after the match, the two of them were seen laughing and joking together. So I don't believe that there's any real heat as a part of this necessarily. Yet what we got was you're not going to see anything more, quote-unquote, real in the WWF than this, because this was real. Ken ain't punching his foot, isn't punching his foot on the mat when he's... He's putting his foot on the mat when he's punching here. His forearm is out. His fist is closed. And Vader's face is the destination. And as you said, Craig, one of the moments of the year where Vader thought, ah, 
to hell with this for a game of toy soldiers, and just pelted Ken round the neck and the back of the head in as close to a working clothesline come legitimate punch as you're ever going to get. And this was fascinating. This has got some very high ratings in um, in the publications. I couldn't really rate it as a wrestling match because there was a lot they didn't get right. Shamrock in particular was somewhat sloppy with some of his throws. Yet I'm prepared to forgive them for that because this was, in every real sense, a fight. It was booked as a fight that you could only win by submission or knockout and the original plan of the standing eight can which was dropped. So it was booked that way. And unlike so many attempts where WWF tried to get involved, uh, wrestling in particular, I should say, try and get involved in the real world, like those appalling ECW shoots that still maybe break out in the highest from last year. This was nothing like that. This was two guys and one in particular laying it in because they had a bit of freedom to lay it in, and they took that freedom and they ran with it. And they gave us something whilst I don't think we're going to be talking about it in any match of the year stakes, because from a, a technical standpoint, from mechanics of professional wrestling, you cannot rank it on that score. Yet I recommend it to everybody. You're going to be getting something you won't, you haven't seen with WWF before, and I assure you, you won't see it again. But you must, must watch this. Absolutely fascinating stuff. Maybe it wasn't intended to be this fascinating, but boy, it was. If there's one thing I remember from this show, it is this. But we are coming up to our main event, and here is Steve Austin. He's backstage with Todd. He doesn't care about the five empty seats. It just means that the Hart Foundation are that much closer to him. He's going to send all five of them back to Calgary in a bunch of wheelchairs. We get footage of Austin stunnering The Undertaker on Raw from two weeks ago. And we also get Undertaker responding with a choke slam which Todd calls a tombstone pile driver, so there goes all my goodwill. Also, Austin is out first to a good pop, dwarfed completely by the one that Undertaker gets. They have a stare down, but here come the Hart Foundation. Arriving down the rampway, hang on a minute, didn't they buy tickets? Why are they backstage? <laughs> if they were backstage already, couldn't they just stand outside? Just don't insult our intelligence, guys, come on. I think there's better merch backstage. <laughs> Do you reckon? Maybe. Ever, the voice, ever the voice of reason, Mr. Wilson. As they make their way into the seats, Austin attacks and we are off with our main event for the World Wrestling Federation Championship. Undertaker defending against Steve Austin. Austin with punches and stomps, but a lot of those tonight. Undertaker still has his cloak and the title belt on at this point. Slug first of Austin bails, but not to cower, but to yank Owen Hart over the guardrail and give him a bit of a kick in. Undertaker emerges and he nails Owen himself, and the Bulldog gets a shot as well. Back in with some rudimentary stuff from Austin. Undertaker with that diving clothesline for a sharp two count. He then hits some shoulder blocks to the shoulder. Okay. Walks the ropes, which is always impressive, and gets a two count. Austin with an eye poke, followed by a side headlock takeover, of all things. Undertaker rolls that into a surprise two with a cradle, but Austin is back on. They then repeat this exact sequence right back to standing side headlock takeover. That's not a good sign. This headlock goes on for a long time. Austin releases it, then we get another headlock, which is a real, real, real concern, followed by a third. Oh, I'm worried now. JR references the Kiss My Feet match from King of the Ring 95 in deference to the Lawler's new fan support for Brett. Thanks for the reminder. The foundation duel with the crowd as we're still in the ring with a headlock. Austin eventually goes after Undertaker's legs. Undertaker's having none of that, though. Double chokes the buckle and he lays some shots into the midriff. Austin recovers and he wraps Undertaker's leg around the ring post. 
and he gives Brian Pillman the finger for good measure. Austin gets jammed into the post. Back heel trip, then he works on the left leg. Then what do we get but an STF from Steve Austin. Lawler says he's never heard of this particular move, which tells you quite a lot really. Austin can't quite get the STF on, so he settles for elbows to the face, which are a bit more effective. Steve then gets kicked over the top rope. Back in Undertaker with a back heel trip of his own. There's too much in the way of swapsies rather than an actual story here, I've got in my notes. They go back to what they know, some vicious shots. Then the Undertaker locks in a half Boston Crab. The crowd have no interest in seeing that, nor do I. Austin gets to the ropes to another tepid reaction. Austin with yet another chop block and he's back to the leg again. Now of all things, I've said that a lot today, a spinning toe hold from Austin. But Taker isn't having that, that egg-sucking dog. Suplex for two and a nice sidekick from Undertaker. He goes for the rope walk, but as we know, that never works twice. Undertaker blocks the superplex into another gourd buster, not a patch on Vader's earlier. They're visibly, they're visibly struggling here, I'm afraid. They stall for a bit and Austin with a blatant low blow. Behind the ref's back, he gives him a double finger. After a receipt from Taker, Earl Hebner then gives Austin the finger too. Calm down, mate. Here's a choke slam. Austin rolls to the apron and recovers. He hits a stone cold stunner, yet there's not much of a pop here. He goes to the cover, and the bell rings. Because we then see that Brian Pillman had jumped the guardrail and rung the, rung the bell himself. That's original. The match continues, albeit not for long. Undertaker goes for a tombstone. Austin reverses it to one of his own. No, Undertaker reverses it back. One, two, three. Undertaker retains. Instantly, and I mean instantly, the foundation into attack both men. Which Lawler calls like a soccer game. I'm not even going there. Austin recovers far too quickly, but he steals Brett's crutch away from him. He clears house of most of the heels, and Owen hits a choke slam. The hearts just sort of slink away at this point. Undertaker celebrates, but Austin belts him with a stutter too. He leaves with the crutch, but not the title. He chases off the hearts, then Undertaker also up very, very quickly from the finisher, stalks them all as we go off the air. Craig, I didn't even want to see this match happen. I don't think the crowd did. And this never, ever got going. No, I, I don't, I'm not entirely convinced these guys are a good fit together. Uh, it almost looked like Austin blew up quite early because it just seemed to revert to rest hold after rest hold. I find this boring. Uh, and I thought it was boring and it was poor. It mildly started to pick up and then it had a screwy finish. So I think that probably hates me more. It makes me... Sorry, it, that doesn't make any sense. It probably makes me hate it more that it had... It wasn't just poor and boring, but it had a silly finish at the end. If it had just finished, I'd have been like, oh, thank God for that. But the, the silliness of Brian Pillman there... Well, not of Brian Pillman, but of the Brian Pillman's involvement. Yeah, it was just nothing. The, the brawl was fairly entertaining afterwards, but I mean... Lots of guys brawling. That's basically Monday Night Raw. So it's just, yeah, nothing, nothing did nothing for me at all. And yeah, I remain convinced that Austin and Undertaker isn't a match I would like to see again. Some guys just have no chemistry, and I think the price of these two, they had no real idea what to do out there, and they re- reverted to some sort of submission fest, which was something different. I'll give them that. But the problem with that is that they hadn't earned that kind of match. 
this isn't Brett Austin at WrestleMania, a match I quite like, as some of you might know. They were doing these moves for the sake of them because they had 20 minutes to film. When Austin going for an STF because he needs to do something in this match, I didn't think it's because, wow, Steve Austin's doing an STF because he really wants to beat The Undertaker. It was, oh, Williams is locking on an STF spot on Callaway because they have to do something. They just never clicked. Their big slugfests never caught fire. And I think one of the main problems here, Craig, when you do a babyface, you babyface match, you've really got to build it up. It's got to mean something. When Hogan faced Warrior at WrestleMania 6, it was like two huge titans colliding. Massive fan favourites coming together at a time that never, never happened. Here they're throwing together two babyfaces, one of whom will always be super-duper mega-over, and one who, despite the reactions he's getting, has only been booked on the babyface side of the ledger for seven weeks. I still don't think he's getting monumental responses from the crowd either. I think in a lot of ways the crowd wants him to get there. They're going to help him eventually as long as he's feuding with the hearts. There's natural cheers there. Yet this match just took place way too early. I don't even think Austin should be anywhere near the title picture at the moment. If you're going to keep him with the Hart Foundation and possibly with this thing on and off with Sean as well, He's got six possible feuds there he can be getting on with for a while before they elevate him to the title. And he's going to get there. He should get there. He deserves to, but not yet. Put Undertaker with Vader or somebody for now if you're going to have him face somebody for the title on the B-show. They didn't really know what to do out there. And the finish, which wasn't a finish with Pillman ringing the bell, a little silly. It makes... A difference from, I don't know, pulling the referee out or something we've seen a million times in professional wrestling for the last 100 years. So it was a bit inventive in that respect, but it was a bit silly. Think about it logically. Why would the bell ringing make you stop the match? We hear accidental bell rings all the time. You'd still go for the pin. The referee would still count it, wouldn't he? Maybe I'm reading a bit too much into it, but it was almost a bit too clever by half. The tombstone reversal sequence was nice, yet Sid did that two months ago. I worry that that's going to be a trope we see a bit too often now, and it's going to lose its specialness. The brawl afterwards, as you say, was good. Austin got his heat back. Not that he was ever really going to lose what heat he's got with a clean loss, but they made sure anyway. But as you say, Craig, we see that all the time anyway. We see it every week these days. It's one of the things that makes Raw so compelling, I must admit. Yet pay-per-views are your chances to end things, not just have to be an extension of your free television show. People are paying money for these. And if it's the same sort of thing we get every week, buy rate's just going to taper off, especially for their B shows, even if they are being given away for free. So you yeah, have two people who I don't think click in the ring, at least not yet, who run out of ideas very quickly, have 20 minutes to fill, they really struggle to do it, and a match which, I repeat, should never really have happened. Didn't excite the crowd. And was, I take no pleasure in saying this, a bit of a washout to end a washout of a pay-per-view. Spoiler alert. Craig, your ultimate thoughts and then your house cold day in hell. And if you dare, a score out of 10. I, 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 I'd like to totally agree with your, uh, your point about it just feeling like an extension of TV. There was nothing sort of special at all. Uh, Except the, the Vader Shamrock match, which we've uh, pretty much agreed that that was by accident. So yeah, there was nothing special here. Four and a half, five, five. I'll give it a five. 
almost exclusively because of the Shamrock Vader uh, incident, if you will. Well, you're a generous man, Mr Wilson. I'm way down on a three with this one. And again, almost entirely for the Vader-Shamrock match, which you have to watch, although you might need to be behind the settee to do so. But yeah, flat as a pancake, weak main event, an undercard you can forget about for now, and the B-show, which was a B-show in every way, shape or form. Skip this one, apart from Vader-Shamrock, three out of ten, and it deserves everything it does, or indeed doesn't get. Oh, it feels great. I shouldn't have to tell you how it feels. You've seen number one contenders come out here before. Ahmed Johnson gave it everything he had last night, but no, that wasn't good enough. You know, that was then, and this is now. And I'll tell you what time it is now. It's time for Farouk to become the World Wrestling Federation champion. And speaking of that, let me ask you a long-awaited question. When was the last time that the World Wrestling Federation had a black man to wear that belt? Can you answer that for me? Answer that question. Never. No, you can't answer that. You know why? Because you, there never has been one. Oh, you, you've had token blacks in position of intercontinental champion like Ahmed Johnson for a short period of time. Oh, you've had U.S. champions like Bobo Brazil with the U.S. belt for a short period of time. No, I'll tell you what. And speaking of that, when was the recent chance that Ahmed Johnson had a shot to become the World Wrestling Federation champion? Tell me that. Can you answer that? No, you can't, because you people don't feel a black man is worthy of winning the World Wrestling Federation title. You don't feel a black man is worthy of being champion of the WWF. But you do feel a black man is worthy of washing your car. You do feel a black man is worthy of washing your clothes. You do think a black man is worthy of even raising your kids. But let me tell you something. Those were those days, and this is a different day and age. You see... No longer are we marching up and down the street wearing our shoes. No longer are we calling radio stations, complaining. We are taking matters into our own hands. When I get to swinging these fists and kicking these feet, you understand that, don't you? Twelfth of May for Monday Night Raw, as the now customary still image recap of last night's pay-per-view. Raw begins with the now also customary appearance of the Hart Foundation. Brett claims he would take them into the mouth of hell to fight the devil, to breathe for me and to pump my blood with their hearts. The hitman informs us he has a surprise for his fans around the world and the foundation, but we'll have to wait to find out what it is. Our first match is the King of the Ring first round contest between Hunter Hurst Helmsley and Ahmed Johnson. No Vince on commentary tonight, by the way. Nothing happens here until China interferes to hit Johnson with a chair for a blatant DQ. Austin carrying a crutch heads to the ring for a chat with Vince. He has no excuses for losing last night, but he will be the WWF champion sooner or later. As for the crutch, it's a souvenir from Brett. If he wants it back, all he has to do is roll down to the ring. Brett is a Judas priest and a complete piece of human trash. We learn that to kill a snake, you have to chop its head off, but he's going to have some fun, starting with the snake's ass. Brian Pillman. Austin's coming for him. The debuting Scott Putski, son of Hall of Famer Ivan Putski, is in action against Lee Cassidy. Putski looks decent enough here and wins decisively with a German suplex. The LOD are up against the NOD, who send down PG-13 to the ring. Hawk no-sells a spike pile driver, of course he does. Then both JC Ice and Wolfie D take a doomsday device each for the X easy three count. The nation just walk off. Mankind brings out a heavily bandaged Paul Bearer. Bearer says that the sacred bond between he and the Undertaker has been seared. He offers Undertaker one more chance of forgiveness. If Taker turns it down, then Bearer will reveal a dark secret about him to the whole world. 
Farouk is in the ring. He's the number one contender for the WWF title. Uh, King of the Ring, your white saviour, The Undertaker, will be a dead man. The Undertaker himself is now up against Savio Vega. He goes after Taker's injured knee for a while but falls victim to a tombstone. The Nation break up the pin for a disqualification as Farouk whips Undertaker with a strap, then poses with the belt for booze. Next up, we're introduced to Rob Van Dam. At Law's behest, RVD calls ECW low-behudgeted and full of low-talented wannabes. Lawler gives him the epithet of Mr. Monday Night and invites him to go on and beat the bon jo- John Bon Jovi lookalike Jeff Hardy. Does so with a split leg moonsault. Part 2 of the sit-down interview with Dustin Runnels airs. He wants to have some fun with this character of gold dust and to entertain the fans every night. Despite that and his happy family life with his wife and daughter, a tearful Dustin says that the one thing he really seeks is his father's approval. Here's The Undertaker via the video wall. He tells Bearer that certain events from the dark side are better off not seeing the light of day. As for Farouk, Undertaker will release a demon and the NOD will rest in peace. With no bill whatsoever, a four-team elimination tag match with Owen and Bulldog, Furnace and Lafon, the new Blackjacks and the Headbangers take place. Furnace and Lafon and the Blackjacks go quickly, then Bulldog pins Thrasher with the power slam for a win. The Foundation are here for Brett's big surprise. After sending them to the back, he calls out that gutless little poser, Shawn Michaels. HBK appears and Shawn symbolises... Sean symbolises to all Americans by thinking he's better than everybody else. Michaels hates it when somebody tells the truth and he didn't have the guts to face Brett at WrestleMania 13. Sean doesn't say a word while Brett continues on and on and on and on until we go off the air. Apparently it was shown in some markets as we see the plan end of the show of Brett staring Sean to hit him, which he does in the form of a switch in music, knocking Brett back into and over his wheelchair. Austin then comes out to help HBK see off the foundation. So I am asking all of you to show some respect and show some compassion while I bring out my Uncle Paul. Good luck on getting compassion out of these morons. It's okay, Uncle Paul. It's okay. Oh my God. Uncle Paul, I know you've been concealing a terrible secret. I know you have some news that will shock the world. And the truth shall set you free. Spread the news, Uncle Paul. Spread the news. The fire undertaker. The fire that sits my face and put me in the hospital. The pain. The sacred bond that we have between each other. That bond has been seared, Undertaker. Cameraman, put that camera close to my eyes because you know these eyes, Undertaker, and you know when I'm speaking the truth. You remember, Undertaker. Oh, yes, you do. I'm going to give you one more chance. One more chance for us to get back together. For me. No more chances, Uncle Paul. Tell us now. I have to do this. I have to do this. One more chance, Undertaker. If you do not accept this final offer, 
I'm going to do something that only you know, Undertaker. A secret that only you know. But I will reveal it to the whole world. It is a secret that I made while I was standing over the graveside of your mother and father. You heard me, Undertaker. Come back, or I'm going to hurt you. Undertaker, you have been forewarned. Have a nice day. And we come back in with a discussion about an interesting event which took place on the May the 12th Raw. Only took up about four or five minutes total TV time. It's uh, fascinating nonetheless. But Jerry Lawler introducing none other than Rob Van Dam, who he called Mr. Monday Night, as his own protege, seemingly, in his own on-again, off-again, now on-again war against extremely crappy wrestling. RVD wrestled a two-minute squash against Jeff Hardy and looked fairly impressive in doing so. Most people seem to think, and I'm pretty sure that they're right, that this is once again ECW using their loose-ish relationship with the WWF in order to help promote their next forthcoming pay-per-view. <laughs> there might be a theme here, which is currently scheduled to take place in August. RVD, of course, is uh, is a heel in ECW can, and to have him pay a heel here doing Lawler's dirty work for him certainly fits in two canonical storylines, which is, which is uh, something a bit different and something which they're actually playing up. So, Craig, what do you think of this? Once again, we, I remember us talking back in February when we had the ECW invasion, if you like, when they took over uh, for pretty much the whole show. And when WWF was supposed to be building towards WrestleMania, they gave ECW two hours of free television time to build their own pay-per-view. Do we think that if they're just going to do this in small doses, because the two clearly do have some sort of relationship that is going to help both parties... It's something they need not make a great amount of play of. Because I say, this whole skit, the brief interview with RVD and the match was less than five minutes. We never heard from him again throughout the rest of the month. Who is this ultimately most beneficial to? I I can't see any way that the WWF benefit at all here. Uh, I mean, I th- I'm sure we had this discussion. I'm sure I was involved in this discussion at the time, but I mean, for every ECW fan that turns in to watch RVD uh, perform on Raw, are they really going to stick around for the... I mean, we look at the next match, it was a fatal four-way that involved the New Jacks, the New Blackjacks and uh, the Headbangers. I mean, they're going to just be like, oh, it's still WWF. So, I don't think it benefits WWF at all. Uh, and for ECW, I mean... Are you going to? Are you really? Whilst they like that when they before when they got the longer spell, you could understand that it's putting them in front of more eyes. But I mean, are you really going to rush out and uh, buy an ECW pay per view after seeing Rob Van Dam beat Jeff Hardy in a couple of minutes? I don't. I don't think so. When certainly not when you've got Jerry the King Lawler going on about how crap it is beforehand. Yeah, it just it seems confused at best and just rubbish at worst got to have a reason from a storyline perspective for doing this. If it turns out that this is just 
affront for WWF giving ECW yet another leg up for another pay-per-view, then they ain't going to be able to do that for a second time. If they're using this as some sort of cross-brand storyline, say, maybe some other ECW guys turn up in the WWF and Van Damme at Lawless Behest lays waste to them and Lawler perhaps turns up at ECW, they want to do it that way around, I don't know. That's something they could possibly look at and will have a through-line reason for this to occur. Yet even then, like you say, Craig, most importantly of all, it's only ECW who are going to benefit from this. WWF, it's not helping them. It can be said over the last few months since Aurora's war kicked off that they are employing a few more ECW-style tropes. They're not going all the way with it not even close to compared to what we've seen there. So linking the two companies in that respect might be of assistance to them. But at the end of the day, they're using their own TV time to forward a storyline, which although it features one of their own their own men, isn't their own storyline. It's not in their own canon. I should mention that Rob Van Damme has not signed a full-time contract with the WWF. He is still ECW front row and centre. He's not a WWF wrestler. There were whispers last month that he was going to end up in WCW, though it looks like that was actually a red herring. It should be said also that Paul Heyman was backstage during during this particular skit, making sure everything went off okay. In other words, making sure that RVD looked like a million bucks. And in fairness to this Jeff Hardy jobber guy, he did in the little two-minute match they had. So, something again, different to see. It's Vince branching out. Yeah, I still can't shake the feeling it's it's the boy Vinny thinking, oh, go on then, just your little upstart promotion. Nobody cares about you anyway. You promote your little pay-per-view that nobody's going to watch. I've got precious TV time. I haven't got my own battles to fight. You take it. It's fine. Use with those five minutes what you will. When he really can't afford to do that. One thing I will say, Rob Van Dam actually cuts a pretty mean promo. So for ECW going forward there, if they want to play up the fact that he loves to work Mondays, etc., then they've really got something. The WWF at the moment, it's just giving Jerry Lawler a thing to do every few weeks, and that's all it looks like being from their perspective. But ECW, if they're being given this ball, why the hell shouldn't they run with it? We begin Raw on May the 19th with Austin addressing his actions from last week. He saw an opportunity to get the foundation and he took it. Sean comes out and puts over his own toughness before the two of them explode and start to beat on each other. As they get separated, the foundation appear on the Titan Tron and a gleeful and issues a challenge for them to face he and Bulldog for the tag titles next week. Sean accepts, but he will find his own partner. Austin says he will do the same and then they scrap again to end the segment. Crush is in the King of the Ring first round action against Hunterhurst Helmsley. Yes, the same Hunterhurst Helmsley was eliminated last week. As Gerald Briscoe tells us, Helmsley has been reinstated due to believing last week's match was no DQ. Kind of wish he'd have done that for every first round match, but there we go. Hunter steals the pin after Savio accidentally kicks Crush in the face, but Rook has to intervene to calm them down. Owen Hart faces Bob Holly in a non-title match when his hometown of Mobile, Alabama. Owen goes for a sharpshooter and Holly reverses it for a, to a cradle to the shock win and a big pop. Sean is backstage with Shamrock, therefore it looks like he's found his tag team partner. We go to the final part of the, the first part, sorry, the sit-down interview with Mankind and Jimmy. 
He gets nicknamed as Mick Foley, but he still conducts interview in character. He recounts the story of when he got kicked in the lip aged eight and how much he seemed to enjoy the pain and the attention it brought him. We got some fascinating video camera footage of the adolescent Foley wrestling in his backyard. More on Foley's past, including his run as Cactus Jack, is promised for next week. Leaf Casty is against the debuting Scott Taylor. Taylor wins by reversing a suplex into a flash pin. Once again, Leaf flips out after the match. Austin is backstage looking for a partner in Sable's dressing room. Well, why not? Might, might want to keep searching though. Vince joins us on commentary for hour number two as the foundation come down to the ring. Brett is out of his wheelchair but still on crutches. After his usual brick bat at American fans, Brett is finally able to reveal the surprise. He will be returning to the action at King of the Ring. He challenges Sean to a match in which if Brett can't beat him in ten minutes, he will never wrestle in the US again. Sean is on the tron to respond and demands that each member of the foundation must be handcuffed to a ring post. He then accuses Brett of recently having sunny days. Brett ignores that comment but accepts Sean's request. The match is on. Goldust, accompanied by Marlena and their daughter Dakota, faces Rockabilly. Honky Top Man tries to interfere but Goldust grabs and belts him with a guitar for a DQ. Ahmed is brooding backstage. Farouk is a sellout, a liar and a racist. That said, Johnson agrees with him that black men don't get shots at the world titles in the past. Ahmed himself will go on to be the hand carrier of the WWF. Austin turns down the Brooklyn Brawlers offer to be his partner, but then demands that Harvey Whippleman accompany him. Harvey sensibly accepts. Rocky Maivia versus Farouk is next. Farouk crotches Rocky on the turnbuckle, then wins with the Dominator. Farouk actually stops Savio and Crush beating on Rocky after the match. We cut backstage to the Foundation beating up Bob Holly. JR calls it gang warfare. Here's Undertaker. He's not white, he's not black, he's the Reaper of Wayward Souls. Farouk will be defeated at King of the Ring. Paul Bearer then appears on the Tron and gives Taker seven more days to come back to him, otherwise he will open Pandora's box and reveal the dark secret. Austin vs. Nyhart is our main event. After barely a minute, Pillman belts Austin with a crutch for a DQ. The Foundation beat them down, but here comes Sean in his chair to chase them off. JR gets in the ring to tell Sean and Austin that, as mandated by Gorilla Monsoon, they will be teaming together next week. We end the show as we started it with the two of them brawling. The final roar of the month begins on May the 26th with an interview with Austin and Michaels. They immediately argue about who the captain of their tag team is, but they do agree they're going to kick some ass. The LOD then come out loudly to confront them in order to request the title shot and the offer is accepted. The Warriors are now facing the team of Anvil and Pillman. A poor match with some ugly botches ends with the expected foundation interference. Austin and HBK clear them off, but Sean accidentally baseball slides Stone Cold. Yes, they end up fighting amongst themselves again. We get the Raw in-ring debut of the Nation of Domination member D'Lo Brown. He takes on Bob Holly. D'Lo looks impressive and wins with a big sit-up powerbomb. So much for Bob's one-week winning streak. Lawler will soon be in action against Goldust in King of the Ring first round match. He joins us backstage. He certainly doesn't hold back. Terry is a gold digger, Dakota is a brat, and Dustin is somebody who kissed men like a flaming fag. Vince and JR sound legitimately taken aback on commentary. The match itself is next. We're in a USWA hotbed of Evansville, Indiana, so Lawler receives lots of cheers here, which JR widely, wisely acknowledges. He gets the flare pin on Goldust for the surprise victory. Goldust beats on King at the top of the ramp afterwards. Lawler rolls all the way down it and then Marlena steps on him for good measure. 
Austin is in the changing room, but before he can say anything, he gets jumped by Pillman. Owner Bulldog join in to leave Stone Cold laying. After the break, he finds Michaels, and they yell at each other once more. Sean says, for once, you just can't, can't you just watch somebody's back? Flash Funk faces Rocky Maivia. During this, the headbangers attack both combatants. No DQ is called, though, and Rocky wins with a top rope flying body press. Here's Brett. King of the Ring will be like a lion ripping into an antelope. Ten minutes is all he needs to punch Sean's face into oblivion. The rest of the foundation also getting some generic jibes at Austin as we end the first hour. The second hour opens with Vader versus Ahmed. This match is for Ahmed's King of the Ring semi-final spot. Ahmed wins with a spine buster in very short order. Paul Bearer, with the face now mostly visible, tells us he has had the secret on his conscience for so long. He will do what no giant, warrior or immortal could do and bring Undertaker to his knees. Hunter is against Rockabilly. The crowd are dead for this heel-heel match until China slams Honky Tonk Man. Hunter wins clean with the pedigree. Undertaker is backstage under the cover of darkness. He tells Paul to do what he has to do and he will do what he has to do. Part 2 of the Mankind sit-down interview airs. The young Mick Foley didn't want to ride horses or fish in a stream. He wants to be where the blood and guts were. So he hitched a ride to MSG to see Jimmy Slooker splash Don Morocco from the top of the cage. He relates the story of when he told Shawn Michaels that he wanted what he had, the girls, the tattoos, and the intention. Aged 18, he created a proto-HBK alter ego by the name of Dude Love. He made a movie in which he got to, we got to see the dude cut promos and throw himself off of his own roof. When he started training as a wrestler, though, he wasn't ready to be Dude Love yet. Nature dictated that he had to be Cactus Jack. After the tag title match and its aftermath, which you'll hear about fully shortly, we finally get Paul Bearer to reveal the big secret. He has known Undertaker's family for many, many years, and Taker knows what the secret is. On the day Undertaker's mother was buried, Paul was the mortician. There weren't two greys on that drizzly morning, there were three. The gong interrupts and Undertaker races straight down to the ring. He hates and despises Paul with all that he is. That said, he hopes that the ones who love him will be able to forgive him what he must do. He goes to choke Bearer and then clearly has second thoughts. Drops to his knee, holds out his hand, he's back with Paul Bearer. The crowd audibly gasps as we fade to black. An offer that you can't refuse. I want to challenge you to a match at the King of the Ring. And if I can't beat you in less than 10 minutes, I promise that I will never, ever wrestle in the United States of America again. What? Never wrestle in the United States again? 10 10 minutes. Now, just before anybody gets their hopes up too high. You know something? You talk about this freedom of speech thing. Last week you had all the freedom in the world. We talked so much, we went off air listening to you babble. But now let's get to the match. Let's get to the challenge. Brett, last WrestleMania, you couldn't beat me in 60 minutes. What in the world makes you think that you can beat me in 10 minutes? I know what it is. It's that gang you got around you, you see. That's what it is. Because I know mano a mano, you wouldn't have a chance. But you know something, Brett? I want all your boys down there. 
I want your whole crew down there, Brad. They'll be down there. Oh, will they? Do I, do I have that promise from you? Do I have that promise from you? They'll all be there? Where I go, the Heart Foundation goes. All righty. Well, I've got one little stipulation. Each one of your men must be handcuffed to a ring post. Wait a minute. That way, you hit man, and I can settle this thing once and for all. None of your goons jumping in. None of your excuses that we have heard for over a year. We are going to find out once and for all if Brett the Hitman Hart can get beat like a man. Because Brett, believe me, you couldn't go 10 minutes in any situation, if you know what I mean. Oh boy. And uh, listen here, even though, even though lately you've had some sunny days, my friend, you still can't get the job done. The heartbreak kid coming off a knee injury, you coming off a knee injury, they're all handcuffed. Hitman, I'm going to knock you down and drag you out. So we come back in, and we are now going to look at a couple of things, major, major things which took place to finish with here. On the 26th of May edition of Raw, uh, you would have heard there in the TV review that we did actually mention the big tag team match between Austin, HBK, and Bulldog Owen, because we're going to look at that now for you in some detail. We're going to give it the old pay-per-view, play-by-play run-through, and then Craig and I are going to discuss it. Craig being on this show, our resident tag team wrestling aficionado, I could have hoped for nobody more. So here we go. <laughs> um, again, Craig, for the second time today, no pressure on this one, okay. So then, 26th of May, 1997, Raw is War. Bulldog and Owen defending their tag team titles against the makeshift team of Stone Cold Steve Austin and the heartbreak kid Shawn Michaels making his in-ring return. Even before the match starts, Austin and HBK are joining with each other. The foundation have a bit of a conflab on the top of the ramp. The faces jump the heels before the bell, and we are on the way. Owen and Austin kick us off, a knee by Austin followed by clubbing arms. He goes for the sharpshooter early, but Bulldog cuts it off. Alba from the second rope gets a two count. Sean gets tagged in, then he goes to work on Owen's left arm. Owen flips out into a face rake, and then here comes Davy Boy and powers HBK down. Sean dodges a leapfrog and pokes Davey in the eye, then hits a beautiful hurricane rana. The big end Siguri for a two count. Austin in, and he stops Dave in what PG Vince calls the lower abdominal area. We see the Legion of Doom watching on via a monitor. They all face the winners of this match next week on Raw. Cheap shot by Owen, and the heels take control. Austin hits the steel, and Owen puts the boots to him. After a break, Austin fights out of an Owen headlock, and he counters a sleeper with a jawjacker. Looks too much like he finishes Steve. He makes the hot dog to Sean, who creams Davey with a forearm and a drop kick. Davey responds by press slamming Sean onto the top rope. Owen beats on HBK on the outside. Back in, Davey slingshots into the buckle for a counter two. Irish whip, and then we get the Sean flip in the corner. You know the one. Running power slam to finish up, but Austin saves the day. And then we've got our tag team, Bonzo Gonzo. Owen is a legal man. He hits a beautiful gut wrench suplex and a leg drop on Sean and gets a two count. The crowd are eating us up with a knife, a fork and a spoon now. 
Mega belly to belly suplex for a near fall. Austin breaks it up. Sunset flip on David White Owen. The ref is distracted, so he only gets a two count off that flip. Leg drop by Davey, also for a two count. Sean makes the tag, but the referee can't see it. Ah, tag team formula. Lovely body pressed by HBK for two, but Owen gives him that kick to quell the momentum. Michaels, though, ducks the charge, and Owen goes balls first into the buckle. Tag for real this time, and Austin is the proverbial house of fire. He tries to stop the bulldog, but Owen breaks it up. As the referee tries to get him out of there, Sean super kicks the bulldog. Austin leaps in for the cover for one, two, three. Massive, massive pop, and we have new tag team champions. Much like in the main event of the pay-per-view, the foundation are in immediately after the bell, and this time they jump Sean and they beat the living hell out of him. Austin manages to sneak away and he sees that Brett is alone on the apron and he gives him a shooing. He even locks on the sharpshooter until the hearts regroup and fight him off. A sweaty Austin after a break is congratulated by Vince backstage and he claims that he won it all by himself. Sean interrupts to tell him that it's a tag team. They argue, they argue, they argue, they argue, they argue, they argue until we eventually cut away. Craig, for 15 minutes of free television on a Monday night, you're not going to get much better entertainment than this. No, no, you're not. I genuinely, genuinely love this. This is, it's quite simplistic. It's just like put four really over, pre- really solid, perhaps acceptable dog wrestlers together, give them a decent amount of time, and just let them go for it. The, the crowd are crazy hot for this. They, they love it throughout. So that sort of helps them along. I, I love, and there's not many of them, I love the sort of interaction sections uh, with Brett, uh, sorry, Owen Hart and Shawn Michaels. Although it's not the most famous uh, Hart versus uh, Shawn Michaels interaction, they're always very good. I mean, Owen's a, a tremendous worker, arguably uh, significantly better than Brett. But yeah, I just I just love seeing Owen and Michaels go for it. You've got the contrast and style of the sort of Bulldogs power moves, and you've got the sort of brawling uh, of Austin. There's just so much goodness in this match. But yeah, I, th- I think the uh, yeah, it's just glorious, one wonderful. Th- this imagine they'd put this on. Uh, on the pay-per-view, if this had been the sort of an extra five ten minutes, been the closer of the pay-per-view, a review of uh, one uh, a cold day in hell would have been terrible undercard. But what a memorable match of the year contender main event that was! And instead, uh, it, it, it's uh, not thrown away, but it, it's given away for free on TV. It seems seems a massive waste, but yeah, this is this is massive. It, it's great. Uh, Really great the the sort of dynamic that that appears afterwards between uh, Austin and Michaels. I like that. It, it's clearly they're going for the uh, difficult relationship between them. It, it's a bit different. It's not it's not been done uh, for a while with the tag champions. So yeah, no, I, there's a lot to a uh, lot to enjoy here. Uh, big big fan of this match, as you uh, alluded to earlier on. I I quite like tag team wrestling, and it's these sort of these sort of matches that that really just make me love love these love tag team wrestling. Wonderful stuff. I genuinely can't wax lyrical about it enough. I've watched this since since we talked about uh, 
talking about this in the pay-per-view. I actually watched it back-to-back this morning because I just love this match so much. Genuinely love this match. I do with less down. Yeah, absolutely double super big thumbs up here. This was four big guys who could all absolutely work. Just work at each other for 12 minutes. There was nothing in this match which you could call particularly intricate or special necessarily. They were really just all out there doing their usual stuff. But it goes back to what we said earlier. Sometimes some people can't click. These four guys and all their all their permutations and combinations, they went together like bacon and eggs and they sizzled. Even things we've seen a million times. <laughs> the the, the Enziguri spot was just wonderful because Owen and Sean know exactly how to do it. And I could pick so many others as well. It's, the action didn't let up. For 12 minutes absolutely flew by. The crowd were hot, and I mean hot, for all of it. In a month which, as far as crowd pops have been on Raw, has not been great, but they were absolutely into this one, and quite rightly so. My only slight quarrel about this one, I'm going to put this one to you, Craig. Did Austin uh, HBK, yeah, well, yeah that, that, that's kind of my job on, on you know, self-appointed, <laughs> self-appointed negativity, <laughs> negativity uh, overlord, if you will. Did Austin HBK need to win the belts here? No, no, uh, there's a fair point there, and uh, if look at you, drag him into negativity. I was quite liking the the sort of domination aspect of the Hart Foundation. They they were just covered in gold. So yeah, no, they they, they didn't need to to uh, to win here at all. But it, it was quite the moment, wasn't it? And you can't take that away from it. The, the pop for the win. I'll exchange my criticism for that. Some real natural emotion from two two guys who the crowd love, one of whom they yeah. love for many a month, one of whom they're loving more each each week. I can look past the fact that it doesn't really make sense that they even want to be tag team champions just for that. Wrestling is about real life emotion. I wouldn't want to take that away, even if I could. So just listen to the pop. The, the crowd there, they know better than I do. <laughs> they, they were there, they got to witness us live, the lucky bleeders, and they saw something fantastic. And yeah, just imagine if, with, as you said, I'm going to completely agree with you, an extra five, ten minutes of this, this would be a perfect in your house main event for big stars. Imagine, imagine that HBK's comeback match on pay per view, the extra buy rate that would actually do for an in your house show in May. And these guys there. You almost that. Yeah, go ahead. I was going to say, you could almost argue that this. Perhaps other than WrestleMania, could headline virtually any pay per view. Because it's star, it's proper star power, proper star power. Four huge names. Four of the big, four, yeah, four of the easily top ten uh, guys in the in the WWF at this moment. Yeah, that's as general star power, and, and and as you say, perhaps slightly more important than the the star power aspect is the fact that they all click together. They all bring, they, they all, yeah, they, they all bring, like I was saying, different sort of little parts. You've, you've got power moves of Bulldog, and you've got Michael's able to bump for him. You've got, I don't want to say necessarily say flippy floppy, but you, you've got the, that sort of aspect that Owen can bring to the party. Uh, he sells so well uh, getting brawled by, by Austin as well. And, and you've just got two... The, the champions, two guys that the crowd 
really want to boo, but in, in the good way, not bad heat. They, they want to boo them, and they want them to lose the title. And on the other side, you've got two guys that they love, uh, and in Austin's case, increasingly love more and more, that, that they desperately want to to uh, win the titles. And you, you just get that, uh, you get that sort of go, almost go-home-happy feel. That would be a great way to end a pay-per-view. Imagine, imagine being swept along 25 minutes of blistering hot action and then to see the babyface uh, triumph over the bad guys. And then you've got the typical raw, raw brawl afterwards. There's, there's, whilst they can agree to a certain extent about the maybe you don't need them to win the titles, there's not a lot that you can't love about all of this all of this uh, this segment say from a free TV perspective for a segment on Raw of 15 minutes the build up the match itself and the reluctant tag team champions you're not going to get beautiful sports entertainment better than this anywhere this year will this match be the reckoning for my best matches of them uh of the year, it might well be. It might well be purely by dint of the star power, the crowd being with them every step of the way, and the fact that you'd think the four of them had been wrestling each other for 20 or 30 years, the way that they clicked, and it was just, it was a joy to behold. It had been even better on pay-per-view, but as far as free TV is concerned, you will not get, and you should not get, much better than this, and I absolutely no. recommend if you missed If you were watching Nitro at the time, and you probably were, then get you Get yourself a copy of this tape and watch this match. You will not be disappointed. Really great entertainment. And I'm going to say a feel-good moment at the end. And what could be wrong or bad about that? Just before we finish, following the tag team title match on the 26th of May 1997 Raw, we had the intriguing situation where Undertaker, who we must not forget is still the WWF champion, had a re- Uniting of sorts with Paul Bearer. Now, obviously, they broke off way, way back at SummerSlam, and Bearer's been a heel in the storyline ever since, aligned with Mankind, kind of sort of aligned with Vader. And he appeared on Raw a couple of weeks beforehand with his face swathed in bandages after being burnt at uh, In Your House Revenge of the Taker, telling us that he had a dark secret about The Undertaker. And unless The Undertaker came back to him, he was going to reveal it. They dragged us out throughout the month. And eventually, on the 26th of May Raw, Paul Bearer comes out to the ring. This, this was our main event segment as well. Show how important they think it is to say that Undertaker has refused the seven-day uh, deadline he gave him to come back. And he's about to reveal the secret. And he was about to do this after saying that on the day that Undertaker's mother and father, yes, Undertaker's mother and father, were being buried. There were not two graves being dug that day. There were three. With that, The Undertaker emerged and looked for all the world he was going to beat on Paul Bearer. Yet he adopted that drop-to-the-knee pose, which we got so used to over the previous six years, beckoned towards Bearer, and it looks like they are back together. As far as The Undertaker is, Undertaker character is concerned, that's because he has to be, rather than because he wants to be. Craig, this is intriguing. It is intriguing. Uh, it, it, it's... Uh giving something, The Undertaker a little bit, something different to do. I'm starting to feel it's getting stretched out a little bit, though. Uh, I think it's definitely going to need a, a reasonably uh, powerful end point. It, 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 if they're building this slowly, it needs to sort of deliver uh, 
doubts that it will, but maybe just um, uh, unless it's tag team wrestling, I'm increasingly pessimistic. But yeah, th- it is intriguing. There's it's still it's still got an element of being a bit gripping. You're like, all right, what's what's going on here? But I'm I'm not entirely sure that they can continue to stretch this out all too much further. There are one or two payoffs, aren't there, really? Either Undertaker out and out aligns with Bearer again and goes full heel, which I just don't see happening. You're not going to get fans to boo the Undertaker, no matter, no matter what he does. He's too much no, of a special, no. No, he's too much of a special attraction. His entrance alone exists to be popped. It's just not going to happen. They are not going to drop that entrance, so we can forget that. Or, alternatively, for some reason, it's incredibly angry with Bearer, and Bearer that blurts out whatever the secret is. Those, those are the two payoffs of this. As to what the secret is, it's anybody's guess. It sounds like they're bringing Undertaker's family into this, which is interesting because for the last six and a half years, a family star-based storyline would be the thing most possibly removed you can get for The Undertaker. I mean, the guy's dead, isn't he? And now we're finding out that his mother and father have been buried, <laughs> and supposedly being a zombie, he's still alive, and maybe somebody else related to him is still alive, or is also dead, or... I don't know. It's... It's very convoluted, but... It's it, yeah. convoluted. It's week-to-week episodic story lo- a storytelling, which is something the WWF never really did when, when Raw was just a self-contained hour show a year or so ago. <laughs> it was it was biggish match, squash match, squash match, promo for the pay-per-view match, and we're out. Now they're developing their stories week after week. And as you say, Craig, and I do agree with you, this can't go on forever. <laughs> I mean, I say Undertaker and Paul Bearer broke up nine months ago, and now we're getting a storyline out of it. We also mustn't forget here, Undertaker is the WWF champion. He's facing Farouk for the title at King of the Ring next next month. Not that you would know anything about that, because I think they're putting all their stock in this storyline. So, episodic storytelling is all well and good, and I'm glad that they are finally following WCW's lead and paying it some heed. But the fact that Undertaker should be, is defending the WWF title, that should always be the be-all and end-all, regardless of the character stuff, regardless of what you've got going on. I'm old school in that respect. Your title holder is your most important person in the company because they are the title holder, no matter what, no matter what other bells and whistles you might have in the background. And this is... This is captivating. I think JR's oh no at the end, just before they went off the air. He said so much there with two words, and that's why JR in particular is the best play-by-play guy in the business by an absolute street. He knows how to sell matches, and he knows how to get over some of the more soap opera-based stuff as well. So he is the person I want calling this wherever it goes. I thought I wanted to give this some particular credence at the end of the show because primarily because he made it seem like an even bigger deal and it wasn't just some schlocky hocus-pocus stuff. I should say, going right back to the news at the beginning, this is grounded in reality in its own right because Paul Bearer is actually a qualified mortician. He has, no less, a degree a degree in, and I quote, mortuary science. <laughs> Can you imagine what the seminars are like for that one? <laughs> I'm going to leave that macabre thought hanging in the air as you bring to a close our time machine trip to the WWF in May 1997. Craig, thank you for joining me on this journey. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you very much for inviting me to be part of it. It's been a pleasure indeed. It got good towards the end. It was a bit ropey when we were discussing that particular pay-per-view, but we... Uh, we're I've had too much of the <laughs> 
Swarm Earth is as I say Swarm on this podcast Craig you yourself can be found on Twitter and you have your own project going on and as I said a few months ago this is your chance to go out there and sell it sell it big time I'm going to cut a promo yeah you can find uh, my musings on the world of wrestling from a, a, a retro slant so if you're listening you probably Hopefully we'll like it. It's uh, ringthedambell.wordpress.com and from there you can find all the, the social links. We we tend to delve... Uh, more, I think we'd spend most of... Say we'd spend most of our time at least 20 years uh, back in time, if not uh, a little bit further. But yeah, it's a, a nice enough companion piece to, to this excellent, excellent podcast. Check to the post, as I say. I could be found on Are we now going to cut a promo on Bob? Uh, <laughs> it's, 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 like, it's like Shawn Michaels last month. He made absolutely sure to rip on Brett when he wasn't even in the country. So if, <laughs> if I wanted to give Bob the proverbial both barrels, now would be my opportunity. Don't twist my arm. Let's say that, Craig. Let me, just stick, <laughs> let me just stay on script. Let me just stay on script. No sunny days here. <laughs> I am Rory McNamara, and I can be found on Twitter as well. <laughs> I can be found on Twitter at RawsDM, where by the time this podcast goes up, I will probably be driving myself and my followers mad about the general election taking place here in the UK on June 8th. So if you really want to put it with me waxing lyrical, if that's the right expression about that horror show, then you're quite welcome to join me on there. We are, of course, on Twitter at uh, Wrestling20YLS which Bob normally runs out, but he does let some of us moonlight on there as well. You've got the website, which I normally get wrong, but I'm going to say is www.wrestling20yrs.com. This list is the the part where Bob comes in on the microphone and tells me that it's wrong. (laughs) No, it's right, so there you go. And as I said at the top of the show, you can find us on Patreon. You can drop us five bucks as a thank you for enriching your lives with Retro Wrestling Podcastery and you get each volume as soon as it is ready and edited and out there. It's patreon.com forward slash wrestling20yrs. We are on iTunes, of course, where all the podcasts are available at the end of each month per month. I did a count today. There should be, when this goes out at the end of May, over 120 podcasts going back to August 1993 for you. So if you want to start the journey and... Um, you're bored at work, <laughs> and you're allowed to use your earphones at work, which I guess, then uh, you could do far worse. You would hear Craig talking about SummerSlam 93, if you start right at the very beginning. And uh, after that... There was a good tag team match on that. <laughs> <laughs> oh, dear, oh, dear, oh, dear. You're living your gimmick, aren't you, Mr. Wilson? <laughs> I am, sorry, yeah. And you can, and you can stick with us on that. And please do, if you're listening to us on iTunes, uh, drop us a review. The uh, wrestling podcast market is a crowded one at the best of times. The retro wrestling podcast uh, market is a very, very crowded one, as we know. So uh, please let us know what you like, what you don't like, what you'd like to hear more of, what you'd like to hear less of. Hear less of. They do all get read, so uh, please drop us a line on that one after you listen to this podcast. So this was Volume 2 of the May 1997 Wrestling 20 Years Ago podcast. Volume 1, WCW, as you might well have heard, uh, looking at Slamboree. Volume 3, our ECW show. Uh, checking all the fallouts to the barely legal pay-per-view and volume four, all things UFC. But I have been Rory McNamara, so from Craig Wilson, this was volume two of the Wrestling 20 Years Ago podcast. And until next time, so long, everybody.